John chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. All the way down to verse 51. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, They gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that excuse me, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask you this morning for your power and your strength. 
to rightly teach the things of your word, to rightly teach the things concerning yourself, of your glory, of your majesty, of the salvation that you provide. Lord, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit would do the work that is needed in our hearts, refining and transforming. We pray, Lord, that um, we would make much of your name today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, kind of like our scripture reading earlier, it's, it's difficult, it's a difficult process to uh, take such a long passage of scripture and and read through the whole passage or particularly in preaching, teach through an entire chapter. It can be done, but John chapter 6 is one of those chapters you don't want to rush through. You could actually preach a series from John chapter 6 for months uh, just because it is so rich in theology and truth. Well, we are traveling through the life of Jesus as we study a harmony of the Gospels, and so um, we are kind of rushing through John chapter 6, and I do apologize that we can't spend more time on just a few verses and, and really digest and chew those things more, but we want to see Jesus continually ministering among the people, teaching the truth of his word, ultimately leading to his death upon the cross and his glorious resurrection. Right now, we are... Uh, uh, following the life of Jesus as John, the gospel writer, teaches us. Jesus has just miraculously fed the 5,000, uh, which is very important for the interpretation of uh, this passage that I read this morning. As we read in John chapter 6, uh, verse t- uh, 22, that it was the next day uh, that these people, these Jews that were on the one side of the Sea of Galilee, seeking out Jesus after this great miracle, seeking him out, as we said last week, for a physical satisfaction, a, uh, a sustenance that Jesus had provided them. They weren't interested necessarily in any spiritual uh, nourishment or truth. They just wanted a, a free meal, and Jesus makes that pretty cl- uh, clear in, in his rebuke of them. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking this feeding of the 5,000 and he is beginning to reveal more and more about his identity as the eternal son of God, as the promised Messiah, as the one whom uh, we can have full and total satisfaction for our souls. And what was interesting as we spoke last week is that uh, Jesus does not necessarily um, identify himself as this eternal bread of life. He, he doesn't in a way just come out and say it. The closest he gets to it is in verse 51 where he's talking about the, the existence of, of, of what uh, he calls a, the bread of life or the, the bread of God, the living bread that came down from heaven. And in verse 51, in the very last sentence, he says, and the bread that I will give you for the, uh, excuse me, I'm, 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 in, the, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> look in verse, um, look in verse 32. 
He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, he says, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there in verse 33, he's identifying the fact that we're not really talking about bread here. We are talking about a person. If you read that in the Greek, it it literally is in a participle meaning the one who comes down from heaven, not the bread who comes down from heaven, the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's beginning to introduce to them, guys, we're not talking about physical bread that feeds your bellies. We're not even talking about physical bread that gives you eternal life. We're talking about the one who gives eternal life. And they're like, well, verse 34, they said, well, sir, give us this bread always. Which begins our second part of this sermon series today, the identification of what I call the gospel bread or the bread of life. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He is revealing to them that he as the son of God, this Galilean Jew that they knew is actually the true source of, of eternal salvation and satisfaction for their souls, sent by the Father to fulfill the plan of redemption for his people who believe upon him. This is a great um, and well-known proclamation of the Lord Jesus. This is the one of seven statements in the book of John where Jesus, uh, we refer to them as the I am statements, where Jesus refers to himself in a, in a, in a metaphorical way to, to teach spiritual truth, specifically about the salvation or the salvific purposes and redemptive purposes that he was sent to accomplish. Jesus is not trying to relate himself to physical objects of the world for just, for no reason at all. He is doing it for purpose, specifically the the purpose of helping people see that he is the true source of salvation. Seven I am statements that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the light of the world, that he is the gate of, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the true vine. You'll notice particularly in three of those, they contain the word life because he's wanting people to understand that he is coming and offering something much greater than we possibly can imagine in this physical realm where we live, that he is offering eternal life, eternal satisfaction for our souls. And where that is so important is that what Jesus is offering, only the Jews thought of God offering. Only God could offer eternal life. Only God could offer forgiveness of sins. And so when Jesus is saying that he is the one that is the access and the the opportunity for eternal life, then he, in essence, is proclaiming his deity. And so Jesus states that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall shall never thirst. Jesus is, in essence, giving uh, somewhat of an, uh, his invitation to these people. 
this invitation to believe upon the Lord Jesus for eternal life. He already invited them to do that in in John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus says, this is the work of God that that you believe in him who he has sent. It's a statement and yet it's an opportunity for, uh, for the people to believe in the one that has been sent. We see throughout the scriptures where we're told to to believe in the one, to repent and believe in the one from heaven. Believe upon the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, we're told. And so there is a clear indication from scripture that we as individuals, as the, the whole human race, we have an obligation and a responsibility to believe upon Jesus. He is worthy of our belief. He is worthy of the one. Uh, he deserves our, uh, our, honor, our honor and our glory. He deserves our worship and our praise. He should be the center and the focal point of those things. We were created to honor and worship him. And so throughout the, the scriptures, we are invited to believe upon the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The response of the gospel of the Lord Jesus is not to hear, it's not to know, but it's to believe in faith. We could say another way that that we are to trust in Christ. And that is our responsibility as people in this world to hear the gospel and to respond. I love John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 because there in the midst of this passage we see both the human responsibility for us as, as individuals to respond to the gospel and yet the beauty of God's sovereignty working in the midst of our faith. John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There we see people by faith trusting and receiving Jesus, believing in his name. And yet we know that that, even that belief and that receiving is by the power and the grace of God. Words like turn to Christ or trust in Christ or believe in Christ These are all acts of faith. Another way we say it in in evangelical circles is that we are to go to Christ in faith, repenting of our sins as if these are uh, one and the same action, turning from the world of sin and turning to Christ. Wayne Grudem writes, I must decide... To depend on Jesus to save me 
In doing this, I move from being an interested observer of the facts of salvation and the teachings of the Bible to being someone who enters into a new relationship with Jesus Christ as a living person. We may therefore define saving faith in the following way. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. Saving faith. And what's interesting in churches today oftentimes is many people think that because they listen to the Bible, because they understand the the knowledge of the scriptures, that they can even recite those things, they think that they have committed to Christ. But yet they've never truly surrendered, or nor are they trusting in the finished work of Christ for their salvation. Thus they have no saving faith. There has been no transfer of trust, as it's been said before. Trusting in themselves, now trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And so the truth is, is that we must believe. And Jesus is saying in John chapter 6, that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That coming and that believing is a response and a responsibility that we must come to Christ. And in him we will find our satisfaction. Not a physical hunger, not a physical thirst, but spiritually what we hunger for as as people created in the image of God and separated from him because of our sin. It's a responsibility that is not negated, negated, though, by the sovereignty of God, but instead is compatible with it. We say, one, that a believer in Jesus Christ can truthfully say both the following statements. I have decided to follow Christ by turning from my sins and trusting in him alone for salvation. And yet, two, God is the one who has saved me by drawing me to myself, opening my eyes of the wages of my sin, and giving me faith to believe in Christ. Both of those can be true because they're both taught in Scripture. When a person rejects Jesus, as myriads of people have done and continue to do throughout history, they will be the ones held accountable for that rejection. A person cannot justly blame God, nor can they blame someone else for their willing rejection of Jesus Christ. Because all of humanity is responsible to believe upon the one who was sent from heaven, who came down as God in the flesh and sacrificed his life to save sinners. They are obligated to believe in the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. And so sadly, verse 36, Jesus condemns these Jews. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Sadly, they, have seen the, they had seen the evidence of the miraculous power of Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. They even asked Jesus for a greater sign. 
thinking back to what Moses had done by, by being the, the, the mediator between them and God and, 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 and looking even to Moses as the one who provided the manna in the wilderness, even though Jesus corrected them and said, you didn't receive that manna from Moses, you received that from the Father. So there Jesus multiplies the, the bread and the fish to, to show him the power that he possesses as God in the flesh. And yet they witness that power and they come to him because they want a free meal. It's like they saw him, but yet they really didn't see him. Which is very descriptive of many people in our churches today who see Jesus and yet they really don't see him. They believe in Jesus as the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble And yet they have never surrendered their life to his finished work. They've never surrendered their life to his lordship. They just want the eternal blessings and benefits. And so in essence, even in their belief, they are rejecting Christ because their belief has not led to true surrender and true saving faith. And so as these Jews reject Jesus, really, it should lead us as people in in churches today to respond in, in at least three ways that I thought of. One, it should bring sadness. It should bring sadness to our hearts because of the great weight of sin in this world. To know that Satan is constantly turning hearts away from the gospel, corrupting minds, ruining gospel witnesses doing whatever he can to run interference with the work of God and his kingdom. Seeing the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ also helps explain why our attempts at evangelism at times do not always prove fruitfulness. We know that there will be throughout the world people day by day rejecting the gospel The gospel is proclaimed in coffee shops and schools and community centers and churches countless times across the country today and throughout history. There's amazing access to the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet many will still not believe. And so we continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel, taking it to the nations, knowing that many will reject that truth. And so our hearts are saddened because of the weight of sin and the brokenness of this world. We know that as we take it forth, that we will be rejected because it just reflects the rejection of our Savior and Lord the, the rejection that He faced by His own people. The rejection that, and the suffering that he faced upon the cross, ultimately uh, the, the rejection and the suffering that he faced by bearing the weight of sin on our behalf. But number three, it should motivate us. It should motivate us to be persistent in our gospel witness because we know that while people will reject the gospel, we know that their people will receive the Lord Jesus. In our belief of the power of the gospel, we know that in God's power and sovereignty, the vilest of humanity has an opportunity to be changed. 
Many of you have children and fathers and mothers. And if we truly believe the power of the gospel, we are persistent with the rejectors of the gospel because we know that in an instant, God can change their heart and they will believe. And I think our human natures are to give up. I think our human natures are to retreat. But may we press on believing that faith is possible, that the gospel is true, and the power of the Holy Spirit is capable to change the vilest of sinners. So as Jesus reveals his identity and he rebukes and, and, and really brings forth this rejection of him, he points to this fulfillment that he comes in, into the world to fulfill. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is speaking of is a people given to him. A people that the Father has given him. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Understand that as he says, all that the Father has given me will come to me are the same ones that whoever believes in him will never thirst and hunger. They are the whoever's as we call them in the scriptures. Because those who truly believe in Christ, who find their satisfaction and their hunger in him, are the ones that the Father has given him by his divine election and sovereignty. They are a people given by the Father to the Son. We studied this a few weeks ago in our series on shepherding for the glory of God. We looked at John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I feel like I'm preaching the same sermon that I did a few weeks ago. Instead of sheep, Jesus calls them my sheep. They are the ones given to him by the Father as a gift. We also call them the church. We also call them God's people, God's family, God's sheep, God's household, God's building. They are the bride of Christ known as the church. And this is a collective group of people that God has decided before the foundation of the world to save. These people make up all of history. This all that the Father has given me is a community of faith as a gift from the Father to the Son. It's a, it's a collective whole of God's people 
throughout the ages and continuing until he returns. And I know that, I know specifically in our area of the world, the concept and the understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation is a very debated thing. I know because there, there was a time in my life that, that I was very hesitant to believe in the sovereignty of God. And God began to show me in the scriptures, not from just one passage or, or two passages, but through all of the scriptures, how his divine election is all throughout scripture. And it concurrently works with human faith. And he began to show me and open my eyes and I'm like, how did I not see this before? My dad's 50, no, my dad's 62 years old. And I remember having a conversation with him and he says, Nathan, how have I never heard of this before? I've been in church for 20 something years of my life. He didn't like my answer. Because oftentimes people are unwilling to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. Just to give an example of divine election from even the Old Testament, consider the people of Israel in, this, in their slavery to Egypt. Think about as God cast the plagues upon Egypt. And there he gives the word of God through Moses a command. And the command was what? To believe the promises in the word of God. And if you believe in the promises in the word of God, you will be saved. And so by faith, the Jews wipe the blood of the, of the slaughtered lambs on their doorposts and the wrath of God passes over the Jews. You know who it didn't pass over? The Egyptians. It did not pass over the Egyptians. And we say, well, that's not fair. But as much as we know about that passage and that truth is that the Egyptians didn't hear that. They didn't, they didn't have that message to be saved. It was God's people. It was God's specific plan through the Egyptians and their anger and their rebellion against their polytheistic uh, worship of other gods. He used these Egyptians as a way of escape to promote his glory. And so in choosing the people of God in a way of escape and yet in concurrence with the Jews and their faith, they were saved. So we ask, which is, did Israel escape because of their faith? Or by God's loving, sovereign choice to save them? And I think we could say both. And from that, God's glory was manifested. We could even say, and this is for another sermon, but we could even say how God's glory was manifested in his wrath upon the Egyptians. Because he is the all-powerful, almighty God. And we should fear him.
So in a way, Jesus is, is condemning these Jews and he's saying, listen, you reject me, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. D.A. Carson writes that however many people do not believe, God's saving purposes cannot be thought of as being frustrated. Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response among well-meaning people. Far from it. His confidence is in his Father to to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he says. Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian. He trusts in God's divine electing grace. So let me encourage you this morning to challenge your thinking in the area of God's sovereignty and salvation. To see how the scriptures teach these truths. Let me encourage you this morning to know that if you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because it was God's eternal plan before the foundation of the world for you to come to him. And yet your equal responsibility to believe in him. Which is why last week I said, when you were coming to Christ and you were believing in him, you weren't necessarily thinking that any external things were happening to you besides the fact that you had seen and understood your sin, that you had begun to to bear the weight of the sin and began to see the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. That's why on evangelistic visits, we don't go out and and teach eternal, divine, electing grace to people. We don't go around and say, are you chosen? Has God chose you? We just come to find out if you've been chosen. Instead, we invite people to understand their sin, to see the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and to believe. And we know and we trust as Jesus knows and trusts that all that the Father has given him will come to him. And whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Jesus says that he has come down in verse 38 to do not his will, but the will of him who sent him. In other words, he's not saying that he and the Father have different wills, but they are in unity as as the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They're in unity in their purpose to carry out the redemptive plan of God set out before the foundation of the world. They're united in the purpose to, to see the people of God that has been gifted to the Son by the Father to see their redemption. Jesus is purposed and driven to carry that out. There is never a time where there is disunity or disharmony in the Trinity. They are always with one mind and one purpose working together. And so the beauty of this passage is that these people that are chosen are the same people that are saved because Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. To say it in a very positive way is to say whoever comes to me will be kept or preserved. To not lose anything is to say I have preserved all that have been given to me. I think it's important for us to see that the, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints or the security of the believer is not a, a doctrine that only pertains to the end but pertains to day by day. Oftentimes we think of election as in the eternity past and sanctification in the, in the, in the present and then glorification and, and the preservation of the saints in the future. But let me tell you that your election in, in, uh, to God by his grace is a continual election. It, it was determined in the past, but you are living in, in the fruit of that election. And that sanctifying work is, is something that's continually happening in your life. And, and a portion of that sanctification is a, your preservation. Every day you are kept in the grace of God. If you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, every day the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you by, by showing you the weight of your sin. Reminding you of the gospel truth that you know. He's giving you the revealed word of God. And so every day in your sanctification, you are being preserved. It's not just for the end. And as James Boyce so well puts it, he says, Such is a state to be the weakness of man that if left to himself, he would assuredly fall. Against the danger of which he is constantly warned, a danger to which even the best instructed and most sanctified are liable, and which is evidenced by the sins which are committed, which are often a most heinous character, sometimes extending to actual denial of the faith and backsliding from God, showing that but for God's uh, mercy and grace, final apostasy would occur. But from the danger thus due to himself, he is rescued by the power and grace of God, who by his watchful preservation keeps guard over his unworthy children, preventing their total estrangement from him and bringing them finally unto salvation that he has designed for them. Praise the Lord. And so the Lord Jesus is resting in and understanding and, and communicating this preservation, which is, it is a rebuke. It is a rebuke to these Jews. And yet a proclamation of the gospel that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What a joyous 
and humbling thought to know that we are being preserved until the the day that Christ comes again and ushers in our lives into eternity, that we are being preserved by his grace and mercy. This does not negate a pursuing of holiness, just like salvation does not negate a, a responsibility to believe. We are called to be holy. We are called to pursue Christ. We are called to put off the things of this world and put on the things of Christ. And yet as we pursue holiness day by day, we know that God's grace is keeping us and preserving us because God has promised that none will be lost. None will be snatched away. And because this gospel truth is so powerful, we find hope for those when we share the gospel, no matter how wicked or or destitute because we know that Christ can save them. Look down in verse 47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Eternal life that Jesus offers comes at a price. Not a price that we pay, but the one that he offers freely of himself to us. His flesh. Some people look at this verse and, and the verses that we'll, f- we'll focus on next week and, and they think of the, the communion or the, the Eucharist, the flesh representing, uh, the bread representing the, the flesh of Christ, the wine and, or, or juice representing the blood of Christ. But when Jesus mentions his flesh here, he, he's not talking about the Lord's table. He's talking about the very sacrificial act of giving of himself, his life, for ours. He says, I will give for the life of the world, or the the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The sacrificial act that Christ made on our behalf. This verse is not teaching that Jesus is giving himself for the sins of the whole world. Because if Jesus gave himself for the sins of the whole world, then by all means the blood of Jesus Christ that is spilt, if it's for the whole world, then the whole world is already saved. It's already atoned for. But instead, the, the offer of, or the, the, the act of Christ and his substitutionary work and death upon the cross, the life he says that he gives, the life of the world means the, 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 the scope of the gospel, the sacrifice that is made so that not just the Jews can be saved, but people from the whole world can be saved. He's talking about the scope of his sacrifice. Unbelievers throughout history, Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation have an opportunity to believe and trust in this Jesus. And these Jews struggled at thinking that anybody outside of the Jewish culture would be able to know the Messiah. 
to be or receive or experience salvation. And so we think back to Isaiah 53, verse 3, that Jesus is the one who was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What powerful words to demonstrate that all that he is and all that he offers to undeserving sinners to have our sins forgiven, to be satisfied in the one that we have rebelled against and rejected throughout our lives, that he now offers himself for salvation for our souls. We are so unworthy to know our God. And so really these passages, as as beautiful as they are and rich as they are in the theology of God's sovereignty, They're also very rich in the theology of God's condemnation. If you look in verse 41 through 46, we see one more final rebuke of the Lord Jesus to these Jews. It says the Jews grumbled about him, verse 41, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except him or except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Jesus has already demonstrated his power. He's demonstrated his authority and the things that, uh, uh, that he has taught and the things that he has displayed are worthy of his, uh, of, for our worship of him and, and to give him the supreme glory. He has given the evidence that he needs to these Jews. He has given the evidence to people all over the world through his word through his life, and yet they reject him. Continuing on with this theme of the Old Testament experience with the Israelites in the wilderness and the manna, so those Jews grumbled at Moses in Exodus chapter 16 because their bellies were hungry. They complained because they were in the, in, in the, the safety and security of of. Of, of the Egyptians, even though they were enslaved to these Egyptians, they, they claim, proclaim in Numbers 11 that their bellies were full. In Numbers 11, the, the Israelites grumbled and complained, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. The grumbling and the complaining 
And yet God miraculously provided manna for them every day but the Sabbath day for 40 years. For 12,480 days, God provided what they needed to survive and to live. So Jesus dives back to the Old Testament as he sees their grumblings to remind them and, and quoting a passage from Isaiah Reminding them of a time when, when, when uh, the, the, the kingdom will come and it will be fulfilled and, and, and Israel will be, be restored in a sense. The, the referring to this prophecy of Isaiah where, where Isaiah said, and they will all be taught by God. Well, as, where Jesus is diving in and, 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 and teaching that passage as, as a rebuke to these Jews. And this condemnation is, is basically this. If you were truly one drawn by the Father to me, if you were truly one that the Father had planned before the foundation of the world, then you would be one taught by God. You would be one included in the kingdom. You would believe in me. But you grumble and complain like your ancestors did hundreds of years before, not seeing the truth Not seeing beyond the fact that you just know me as Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter who probably came to your town or your city and did woodworking and and other skills uh, and provided services for you. You can't look beyond just the physical history and see that I have come down. And I'm not just proclaiming that I'm the son of God. Jesus has shown that he's the son of God in his power and his authority. And so as John 6.44 provides comfort for us. It's a statement of condemnation to these Jews that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So as we conclude and we think about our lives, we think and pray as we should pray regarding our lost family members and our friends. God, would you please draw them to yourself? Would you please, by your divine sovereignty, through the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, open their eyes to see the gross weight of their sin, that, those, that that sin that has been committed is because of the sinfulness that they live in day by day and the, the sinful nature that they've inherited from Adam, passed down from generation to generation, from person to person, that they must be rescued from that sin. And that the only rescue that's available is the bread of life that provides the satisfaction that we need in this world. And his name is Jesus. The eternal son of God. Who came down from heaven. Put on flesh. Lived a perfect life. Attained righteousness for us because he is righteous. And he, and he imputes that righteousness to those who believe. So that we don't stand before God one day in eternity because we're good people or because we're righteousness. We only can stand in his presence for all eternity because we've received the righteousness of God when we've believed in him 
when we've trusted in him by faith. And so if you're here this morning, our prayer for you is that God would draw you to himself. But our command to you from the scriptures is believe. Trust that Jesus Christ is the only way for your salvation. Trust that he is both God and man and and bearing uh, 100% God and 100% man coming down from heaven, sacrificing himself to provide rescue, to provide forgiveness for your life. You cannot just know who Jesus is. You must receive him. You must trust fully in the work that he accomplished on the cross for you to be saved. And if you believe, if you fully trust in him, then you will know that it is by his divine sovereignty and purpose that you have come to him. And so we leave this morning thinking about the glory of Christ and salvation, the blood of Christ that purchased forgiveness, that purchased freedom from the slavery of sin, for all that the Father has given to the Son. So that we as believers no longer find our identities in the things of this world. If Jesus is our eternal satisfaction, then we as believers in Jesus Christ should not find identities in things that walk or talk or exist on this earth. We must find our identities in Christ alone. We won't get to heaven one day with name badges walking around saying, hello, my name is a really good father. Or a really successful homeschool mother. Or a great career and, or successful career oriented person. No, clearly, if we're in heaven living in the satisfaction and the delight of our king, it will clearly be, hello, my name is son or daughter of the king. Unworthy to even be here if it wasn't for the grace of Christ alone. So if you don't know Christ this morning, you are invited to receive him, not because you deserve it, but because Christ offers this gospel, good news proclamation to you that he can save you from your sin. Will you believe and trust in him today? Will you surrender by turning away from your sins and turning to Christ as your king?